Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Operation Sequel. Today we're talking about Final Fantasy VI. Final Fantasy VI was released in April of 1994 in Japan for the Super Nintendo and North America got it here in October of 1994. Europe didn't receive it until the PlayStation port where it was in that collection and they got that in March of 2002 as well as Japan and North America for the PlayStation release. Now this hasn't been remade too many times, uh, it's gotten the Game Boy Advance treatment like most of them and it's been released on Android, iOS, and Windows. And as highly regarded as this game is, it's kind of surprising how little it's been remade, remastered, re-released kind of thing. Now for a quick staff roll, the directors were Yoshinori Kitase and Hiroyuki Ito. Artists, well there's actually quite a few on this one. Uh, Tetsuya Takahashi, Kazuko Shiboya, Yoshitaka Amano, Hideo Manaba, and Tetsuya Nomura, who has now become a huge part of the Final Fantasy franchise. Of course, the music was done by Nubo Uematsu. So we, we have a lot of the old staff still there, but you can see a new guard coming in. Now, it's kind of funny that as big a fan as I am of the Final Fantasy franchise, wow, that's really hard to say, I don't have a lot of love for Six. I played it back when I was, I couldn't tell you a date, it was just something that I remember playing. Uh, it was before the PlayStation, but it was on the SNES, which, as everybody knows, it was released as Final Fantasy III in North America. But I just remember kind of being, okay, it's another Final Fantasy game. And it wasn't until years later where I started reading things on the internet that I, I noticed, you know, that whole just explosion of love for Final Fantasy VI. And I never did get around to replaying it, and I probably should have before this point, but I figure, eh, better late than never, right? So this time, kind of the same thing I did with Final Fantasy V, I did play the SNES release, and this was the Ted Woolsey translation that we got over here to begin with. Alright, so we might as well dive right in, right? So as soon as you boot up the cart, it hits you with that kind of patented amazing square intros. Not, on not only does the music swell at a perfect time, but you also get that wonderful scene of the mechs walking in the snow while the credits roll. And this is kind of different in the fact that this Final Fantasy really wears its sci-fi on its sleeve. Like, I mean, first thing, before there's any swords, before there's any magic, before there's any of that, it's boom, mechs. So that's a little different than what we've seen so far. And you know, that, that whole scene, the, the whole scene with the mechs in the snow, it's still really effective. It, it kind of feels very bittersweet, but you also know you're in for a great adventure. So it's nice to see that after all these years, it still holds up fairly well. And, and it just shows the beginning of Square's love affair with Mode 7 in this game. Now, there are a couple new things to 6 that 5 doesn't do. Uh, one of the things it does is 6 is actually closer to 7 in terms of the way you build your characters. Like with 7 you have Materia and every character is kind of a blank slate. Whereas take Final Fantasy 4 for example, where each character is an individual character with their own skills and as they level up they unlock them. This is kind of a hybrid between the two. So you have people like, let's take Saban for example, because he suplexes things and it's cool. While you can assign different, well, you know, I guess this has flavors of eight in it too. You can assign different espers, which are summons, eidolons, whichever you want to call them. They're all the same thing. 
you assign different espers to them and as they have them equipped they learn new things so let's say Saban has Ifrit equipped. Not only will he get a bonus to a certain stat whenever he levels up while that is equipped, you will also learn spells at a specified rate. Like say fire, you'll learn that for every one point you get, it'll be worth 10%. But then something like fire two, it'll, you'll learn at a slower rate. So it will take some time with each to fully max out what that summon can teach. And I'm sorry, not summon, but you know what I mean, the espers. Another new thing this adds is odd things in battle. Like like you have you have pincer attacks now where you can have your party split in the middle with two facing right, two facing left, and there's enemies on both sides. Those didn't really change much. Like to be honest, I never had to stop and think of, hmm, this is a pincer attack, what should I do? So in the end, it almost ended up being more of an aesthetic thing than anything. Now before we get into you know the meat of the game the story and all that some things that are weird that did strike me right like you can tell this must be right before they started working on chrono trigger because there seems to be a lot of ui and you know just sounds that really tweaked me and reminded me of, of chrono trigger which you know is i'd say it's probably a little better than final fantasy 6 okay actually I, I like it more let's put it that way so it was cool to see that dna that kind of started here with the menus and some of the noises and even like that you know that little save point ping when you hit that little flashing light in chrono trigger it, it, that's here too so i don't know if that makes i'm just gonna stop because this isn't about chrono trigger another thing this does that i can't say i remember if seven does and i know you know Obviously, I know four or five don't do it. Whenever you meet a new character, the screen fades to black and, you know, you get that little sprite and it tells you a little bit about each character before it continues on with the scene. And I like that. That's a very nice touch. It at least gives you a kind of primer on what that character is going to be. Another new thing it does is they have almost mini RTS. If you've played Final Fantasy VII, think kind of Cosmo Canyon in Final Fantasy VII. You have this thing where you have to split up your party sometimes into you know three groups of four sometimes into just three groups of one but you'll have enemies coming at a place you have to guard from a whole bunch of different routes and you kind of have to post your guys up or you can take one of your strongest members and try to eliminate everybody but you can't let the enemy reach this end point while that was fun at first it did get old after a while just because it was if you were over leveled for it, it just became a slog of just, okay, I've got to beat everybody. And if you were under leveled for it, it was kind of fun because you were nail biting on whether or not your guy is going to be able to hold the line. And if there's anything Mass Effect taught us, it's that you should always hold the line. Getting into the story a little bit here, Final Fantasy is well regarded for its story and its characters. And replaying it now as an adult, I kind of disagree with that. While the story starts off great, and it does do that thing where it tells battle stories. It's not just battle and then sprites dancing around outside of battle. They also try to convey certain things through battle. Like in the beginning, where you're hitting the town of Narsh, you just steamroll everything. And these townspeople are trying to throw everything at you to stop. And you just steamroll everything. And that was nice. That kind of conveyed that, you know, you are part of a powerful empire. And later on, there are some fights against Sabin and that guy that I can't think of, where the story actually takes place in the battle itself. It, it's not battle that's kind of secluded from everything, but then we jump right back to the story. So I, I like to see that they kept that. Now there are, are major things that Final Fantasy VI is known for, and we'll touch on these later. One of them is Kefka, and the other is the Opera House. Now, not to jump right into those things, because those are things that I have a problem with. Not the Opera House, but 
but Kefka I have a problem with. I don't think they aged very well, but we'll get to that later. For right now, that's a bit of a teaser. So after the prologue is done and Terra has officially just wiped all life out of this town. You hit the, uh, not the, I, you see, I keep wanting to say Eidolons, but I actually mean Espers. So do forgive me if I say Eidolons. But so, so we meet the Esper, the story kicks into high gear and hooray, we have an amnesia story again. Now, I don't know if amnesia didn't exist I don't know how Square would get through a lot of their games. And this isn't a huge detraction from it, but playing all six of these right in a row, man, that's really starting to irk me. Why couldn't Terra just, you know, be from another country and, and she's a foreigner and you have to explain things to her like you would an amnesiac, but you don't have that kind of tried and true, very trite story element. Because not only is amnesia incredibly rare, but it just gets old. This is, what, the third time? I mean, luckily nobody in this game, at least, was, was being controlled by an evil power as a puppet. So at least we didn't have that. Well, I mean, maybe the Emperor a little bit, but not in the way Final Fantasy does, of like, I'm not in control of my actions kind of thing. His was more through political means. Another thing I did notice about this is I can see why in Final Fantasy VII they did different size character models. Because in this you have a fight with um, Saban's rival, uh, Vargas, I believe his name is. He has a very nice sprite, you know, it, it's human proportions. Same with Kefka, whenever you fight Kefka before the end. He has human proportions. And then there's your little stubby guys. It just looks weird. I would have preferred, actually, if they had a more, either bring like Vargas or Kefka down to the stubby chibi level, or if they had different spites for your characters, like a different sprite on the world map versus a different sprite in battle. So I can see why Final Fantasy VII does it. It just has this weird juxtaposition when you see it, when you know, oh, he's human and he's human, but they look vastly different in proportion. Now, I don't know for sure about Final Fantasy III because I played the remaster version of that, but this is the first one I noticed where there are actual side quests, not just go get the rat tail or what was it in four? Oh, here are some extra summons you can get. This has actual side quests, like there's a sick man in town who can't get up and write letters to his girlfriend lives far away so you actually have to write them and deliver them and it's back and forth and the rewards aren't anything special but it's a nice little bit of story that you don't ever have to do so this marks like what i noticed is like official side quests like they will have later on and when it comes to the story there are a few times where it branches off now this is a point of frustration as well as a a good point there's one point in the story where your party splits into three and you have Locke having to go here and Terra having to go here and Edgar having to go here. And that's nice because as soon as that scene ends, a little Moogle, I'm guessing it's Mog, pops up. You actually choose which storyline you want to follow. And there are some benefits to going in a certain order, but for the most part it doesn't matter. So you're up to choice of, hmm, which storyline am I feeling right now? like that. On the downside of it, it starts to wear on you after a while if you have a group of characters you like. The times you get to play as them are far and few between until you get way into the game. So it, it's, I like the idea, but in an RPG, unless it's a rotating fourth slot or a rotating fifth slot, 
I like to be able to choose at all times who my party is. All right, so so let's talk Kefka, folks. When you first see Kefka, the first impression you get is that he is a spoiled man-child. And you know, to be honest, that impression doesn't leave for almost the whole game. I, I don't quite see why he gets held up in so high regard. Like, compared to X-Death from 5, Kefka's a joke. Sure, yes, let's, let's be fair here. He does accomplish his goals. He accomplishes them quite well. So did X-Death. While X-Death has an incredibly stupid name, but tends to be a bit more menacing, Kefka is a bit of a joke. And not a good joke. Like, he's not a bumbling kind of guy. He's just... It's just the attitude he exudes. He doesn't come across as menacing. He doesn't even come across as insane. He just comes across, well, like, like a spoiled child for 80% of the game. And it's really not until the end that Kefka starts to feel like a villain because they give him, you know, that good old Final Fantasy pathos speech right before the end boss. But yeah, you know what? I really didn't like Kefka here. And I kind of have to disagree that he's a good Final Fantasy villain, especially compared to things like Adea and X-Death and even Sephiroth. I, I yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Now, now it could also be explained just by nostalgia. You know, he was the one. Now, I think he would play very well to kids, but once you play this as an adult, it, he's not menacing in the least. He's just annoying. So yeah, that was weird to come back to because, you know, well, you're on the internet, you know the internet, they love some Kefka. But to be honest, it's not just him either. Like there's a part with Cyan where his family dies and you're tromping through the woods and pfft, there's, there's a train station which comes out of nowhere and I love it. I love that section of the game because it is a little, it, it has a nice bit of atmosphere to it, but it does, it comes out of nowhere. But anyway, so you get through the Phantom Train and Scion sees his family boarding the train that will take them to the afterlife. That's a nice sad moment in the story and they sort of play it off well, but then 20 seconds later it's back to the jokes. They don't really give moments in this time to breathe. Same with Celeste in uh, her trying to commit suicide, which it doesn't really show that, but I mean you can tell that's what she's gonna do. Even then that moment is not left to breathe at all. It's just sad moment. Boom, back to the story, let's go, let's tell some jokes, we're good. Now, I don't know if this is part of the Woolsey translation and it is actually different, I'm not sure, but I'm just saying, what we know of is Final Fantasy III on the SNES, that's what I'm feeling. So maybe one of these days I will go and play one of the newer translations of it and see if it, it feels the same way. Like there's some weird stuff in here, right? Like. Evidently somebody at the translation department, which I don't know if this was a Ted Woolsey by himself project And you know props to the guy if it is take all of these complaints with a grain of salt because it's way better than I could do They have this weird fascination with slam dancing now. I get it. It was the 90s But yeah, there's an enemy called slam dancer and they make some references to slam and I haven't seen slam dancing in Oh, a good decade or so. So it was a bit weird. It's kind of like when you're playing a working designs game and they crack a Bill Clinton joke. It just sticks out really bad. I can't hold it against them. You know, maybe, maybe slam dancing resonated with a bunch of kids. Who knows? One thing that is nice about the story is they've finally given Esper Eidolon Summons a chance to become characters. Like Ramo is, is actually a character here. And even Ifrit and Shiva have some personalities to them when you fight them and when you talk to them. And I really like that because, again, as I'm sure you're aware, if it's not monks being my favorite, it's summons being my favorite. So it, it's nice to see them become more characters in this and that the whole story revolves around them. I'm not going to tell you the story because it's Final Fantasy VI. I, I, 
you should know it by now. If not, you can probably take a pretty good guess based on just what you've read. And speaking of things you've read about, the opera scene is a really cool moment. Still is. I think it's cool. I don't quite get the teary-eyed remembrance of it because it just, I mean, due to limitations of the time, it sounds like somebody warbling underwater in a bathtub. But it's a fun scene. Like, it, it's a fun part to play if you're not trying to remember your lines. Which, by the way, I, I swear I remember a bunch of RPGs doing that. Of like, uh-oh, suddenly you have to put on a play. I remember Jade Empire doing it. I remember a couple RPGs doing it. They're kind of weird. But if you're not doing that, then, you know, it, it has that scene where you've got to try to get to Ultros in time to stop the octopus from ruining the play, which is a terrible non sequitur when you just say it but it makes sense in the game overall i i was smiling almost the whole time just because it was fun i i don't get touching i don't get major amounts of pathos from but whatever that's a personal thing and if it hits you that way that's fine just saying i don't quite get it we've talked a little bit about the story in broad strokes now i don't think the story gets very interesting at all until you hit the esper factory and that's when you find out Wait, did I say Esper? I said Esper, I didn't say Eilon. Okay. That's where you find out that they're starting to harvest these things for the Magicite, which is what you use to basically junction it to somebody. And yeah, I'd say right about there is where the story starts to get interesting. Uh, up until that point, I kind of was bored a lot of the time. And once you hit that point, okay, now there's stakes to something. It's not just Evil Empire, Band of Rebels. By the way, I don't really get the Star... I'm not big on the Star Wars, but evidently everybody says this is a Star Wars analogy. I would just think it's an empire versus a scrappy band. I mean, it's Nazis versus the French underground. It's, it's you know, it's, it can be anything. But whatever, if, if you want to draw Star Wars parallels, that's up to you and that's awesome. And after you hit that Esper factory, it kind of blands out for a bit again. And then it doesn't quite catch up until the whole Cataclysm event, where the world goes from what they call the World of Balance, which is, you know, your usual Final Fantasy, to World of Ruin which doesn't change much gameplay-wise, but it does change a lot story-wise. Like, towns become different, and areas that you've been, they now ge geographically look different. So it is a very cool thing that happens, and there again, my interest peaked. I was like, oh, all right, okay, so we're, we're, we're gonna have some cool stuff. And then it kind of blends out for a bit. To be honest, Final Fantasy VI has an awful story, not based on what the content is, but based on how it tells it. It tells it in incredibly fragmented pieces. And a lot of times those pieces mesh and they work out well. And other times you'll get a fragment and then it'll be a good long while before you get another fragment. And then there's sometimes where like the cyan with the phantom train, it just kind of meshes and then it doesn't. And then somebody comes along with a sledgehammer and insists, no, this meshes. And they just mash it in until it works. So it, it's kind of a mixed bag. I think overall the story could be told well. Now, again, I don't know if this is translation or not, but it really doesn't work if you're playing this for the story. Now, luckily, there's a heck of a lot of game in there. One of the big things about Final Fantasy is the party members, right? They're not the already predetermined characters of four. Everybody's a blank slate. Like, sure, you'll have somebody like Mog who gets dance or Edgar gets tools and Sieben gets blitz. Like I said, you'll have these individual pieces of the character that stick with the character no matter what. But that's, this is another, and this is why I wasn't such a huge fan of Seven and Eight to some lesser extent with, you know, junctioning the Guardian forces. Without having a specified character path, everybody just becomes a jack-of-all-trade. Like, there is no reason why in Final Fantasy VI, Sabin, other than stats, should not be just as much a spellcaster as Celeste. There's no reason for it. 
And in 7, there's no reason why Sid cannot be as good a spellcaster as Red 13. It's almost like an over uh, homogenization of it. Like this has no absolutely nothing to do with Final Fantasy, but it, it kind of gets my point across. Have you ever played Warcraft? World of Warcraft. Before, like a long time ago, the races felt different. You had Torrens who could, they didn't need a mount, they could just run fast enough, and you had Orcs that could do this, but humans could be this class, and Orcs could be, you know, that, everything felt different. And over time, they kind of homogenized everything to where nobody really feels different other than the skin. And that's kind of the problem Final Fantasy VI has, and I won't, I'll reserve judgment for seven and eight because again, I haven't played them in a while, but that's a big problem here. Like, I don't know why I liked the characters I liked. They had little bits of personality that shined through, but it's not like, oh, I really clicked with his abilities or anything like that. It was just kind of like, uh, most of my party, which by the way, we'll talk about this later, Gao was pretty much the one constant. Gao and Ed and later on, you know, when you have to choose between, okay, this person, this, but it was my general party whenever I got to choose was, was Gal, Edgar, Celeste, and Sabin. And then later I got Mog, and, well, Sabin can go goodbye because that's a Moogle, and you don't say no to Moogles. And then the Yeti came, and you were like, oh, it's a Yeti. And while that Yeti is a very subpar Yeti, it is still a Yeti, and you must use it. So, towards the end of the game, my party was Edgar, Umaro, Gao, and Celeste. And you can switch out Celeste for Terra whenever the opportunity arose, just based on the story. Now, I would like to talk about Gao, Realm, and... Oh, Strago. There we go. So, Gao is a bit of a blue mage. And I generally don't like Blue Mage because it seems like a lot of work for very little payoff. Other than Big Guard, there's not really ever much. Like, think Kamari. Is it Kamari or Kimrahi from Final Fantasy X? I think it's Kamari. Yeah, Big Guard is great and White Wind is great. But for the most part, eh, Titus and Orin can hit just as hard. It, it, Yuna can actually outspell cast and so can Lulu. So it, it you're kind of spending a lot of work to get a subpar red mage when at any given time you could have a really good white mage or a really good black mage. But Gao does things a little differently. He does what he, they call rages. And this is something that hasn't been done before. Rage is like a berserker status where you can't control the character. But the trick with Gao is when you're on a certain part of the continent called the Felt, any enemies you run into, you can have Gao leap onto the enemies and he leaves your party for a indeterminate amount of time. So let's say you see that there's a uh, Tyrannosaur on the belt, which I highly recommend because Meteo is great. So you get into that battle, Gao leaps, the battle ends, and then you're just running around sans Gao for a while. And then at, at, at the end of any given battle, he'll pop back up and he'll learn the moveset of that monster. So then, you know, if he does it to a Gigas, then he'll learn magnitude eight. If he does it to a Tyrannosaur, he'll get Meteor. If he does it to a Pterodon, he gets Fireball, I think. So it doesn't rely on that Blue Mage, well, I have to make sure you hit me with this thing that makes Blue Mage so frustrating. So I really liked Gao a lot. Now when you go, you select a Rage, you then select what monster moveset you want to use, and he will kind of alternate. It's not a one-to-one, -one, but you'll generally see both uh, between, say, physical attacks or special abilities, things like that. And generally, each Rage comes with a status. Like, say you use Pterodon, you'll also be afflicted with Float. There's a lot of strategic things going on with Gal. Now, the problem is he does take a lot of work. Either that or you just wait till later in the game when you have really good monsters and go leap on them and just use, you know, Tyrannosaur. But I had a lot of fun uh, checking out each one of his different things. And then they have something called Realm something. They have a little girl, Realm, who's a painter. 
and her special ability is Sketch. What Sketch? I didn't find it incredibly useful, but it is still a very cool idea. When you're in a battle, you choose to sketch an enemy, and she draws a copy of that enemy, and they attack with either a skill or a physical attack. Which is kind of cool, that's a, that's a new thing. And then Strago is kind of the other variation of Blue Mage, where he's more like Kimari, but you don't have to get hit by the attack, you just have to see it, used in the battle. You know, Realm and Strago being granddaughter and grandfather, they work really well as a team, because if there's something you need, but say, you know, that grenade is not using Explode, and you really want to get that, then Realm can sketch it, and as long as it happens in the battle, and he's still you know, not knocked out or stoned or any of that, he will get that skill, which uh, I believe is called lore. Sorry, didn't mention that. Those are, let's say two, really good ways blue mage becomes suddenly way less frustrating to use. So I like that. Six really earned some high regard in that because blue mage is always kind of crappy to me. I just don't get on with it. There's no summoner, let's put it that way. Okay, sorry to go so long and start wrapping this up. So a couple things that I will ding six for is there are, there's the Tower of Kefka Fanatics once he destroys the world that you have to get through. And this is interesting in theory and just a slog in practice. Each enemy in there has a specific weakness, like, oh, this one's weak to life, and this one, the best way to take care of it is by casting this spell. And they're all numbered, so like, you know, 10, 20, 99, you know, stuff like that. You'll always remember how to take care of them, but boy, it's a slog to go up. I don't remember how many floors it is. It's a ridiculous amount of floors. And there's no puzzles or anything like there is in the actual Kefka's Tower, which by the way, that does have some light puzzles, but nothing I found too frustrating. So that's okay. It's just with the incredibly high encounter rate of so far all of these retro ones, plus the fact that you're having to fight these kind of tedious battles, that became really annoying. And the reward isn't really worth that much. I mean, it could, if I remember correctly, that's where you get X magic would let you cast something twice in a round, which I mean, back-to-back -back ultimas are great, but yeah, it, it was a lot of frustration for, and the reward didn't feel special when I got it because of all that frustration. So we've blasted through the whole game. We're, we're doing the end and poof, out pops Kefka, the actual boss battle. Let me see what I can compare. If you've ever played Eternal Darkness, do you remember that one scene with the, the Italian architect and he gets kind of chunked into this tower made of bodies? That's about what Kefka's, you know, boss fight is. It's a, it's a bunch of the different summons kind of mashed into this Cronenberg thing, which is great because, you know, that's what I like about X-Death. Again, also with Final Fantasy V, wow, that sprite is fantastic. Like, the people who drew that, I don't know which of the artists it was. Man, I would love to buy them a beer and pat them on the back because that must have been so much work and it looks great. It looks as good as you could possibly think a something pixel art could. Now, the bad thing is about that bot, it wasn't very hard, or at least I didn't struggle with it very much. I was level, I don't know. I can't remember. I want to say I was level 50s, mid 50s, somewhere in there, I think. I did spend a lot of time goofing around. Maybe it was late 50s. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember. But the boss fight wasn't too hard. Uh, things leading up to it definitely were. Like, to get to Kefka was more of a trial than actually the Kefka boss fight. The really cool thing this does that I don't remember them ever doing again is you get to take your whole 12 people in there. Now, you only fight in groups of four, but when somebody gets knocked 
knocked out, the next party member in line takes their place. Think something like Final Fantasy Type-0, where you have your 15, I think, in that, people. You set an, uh, an order of preference. And when one dies, poof, you can bring in the next one. It's kind of like that, and a very cool idea. Like, I wish more games would have done that, because that, that gives you a chance to, to not feel like some characters are a waste. Like in this, one of the biggest wastes was Shadow. Yeah, he, he just kind of was a wet fart for me. I did take the time to level him up and bought 99 shurukens like you do, and then bought some skeins, you know, just, just in case. And he didn't even get to see the boss fight at the end. It was just kind of, ah, well, all that time was kind of wasted on that character. Same with Realm. I didn't use her in the end either, or Strago, any of those. It's kind of, I, I would have actually liked, since there's three different layers to Kefka, it would have been great if you had to do that party split again. And then you would have gotten a reward for spending so much time with each of the characters. That's not a huge deal. I mean, the end boss is amazingly climactic, and of course you have Dancing Mad going, which I'm not going to say it's one of the best SNES songs, but it's, it's on, like, top 100 lists man pretty high up too it, it's a great thing now i need to stop saying now i need to think of a better segue okay so final judgments on final fantasy 6 it's all right that's really where i sit on it i don't have any desire to play it again and i don't know if i will in the next year or so it doesn't do anything horribly bad now this could be, see there I go again with the nows, this could also be that since I first played it, it has gotten so much hype and so much respect, been just showered with praise for things that I don't think quite warrant it now that I've seen it again. We're gonna call it a wash. It's all right. I think it's worth you playing. If you feel like an old Final Fantasy game, you're like, eh, which one should I play? Six is a very viable option. Which, by the I will I'll just segue right now. See, I did a good segue, and I blew it. This marks the definite end of an era. This is it. This is the last retro numbered Final Fantasy boom before disc media. Mainly Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII changed everything. Up until this point, if I had to pick my favorite, it's still five. Like, a five, I honestly think, blows six out of the water. Maybe not in the story, but just in fun. Five was a lot of fun to play with those classes. If I had to order them, and nobody's forcing me to, so I guess I'm not saying if I have to order them, since I like to order them, because remember, you're not having fun until numbers are involved, and spreadsheets, I would say the best of the retro, and I'm calling PlayStation down retro, five wins, hands down, with four being in second place, and six being third. So out of the three numbered ones for the Super Nintendo and Final Fantasies, yeah, I think six is the weakest of those three. I think four has a more cohesive story, five is more fun to play, and six is kind of both, just not in as high quantity. So if you have those taking the first three slots, it then becomes a bit of a gamble. Like I think Final Fantasy two would come next. So in the fourth slot, we got two, in the fifth slot, I'm gonna say one. And then I think the bottom, the dregs of this era, and it's not quite fair since I played the remake, but three and then Mystic Quest is the bottom. Not actually quite how I see this, saw this seed, whew, how I saw this list shaking out. It was just kind of a surprise that I liked five as much as I did. And four, I was kind of surprised by four. So moving on, we will leave this era behind and I will say I absolutely do not regret playing through this era. Sometimes it was rough, not gonna lie. Sometimes the temptation to cheat or just maybe we'll do some Game Genie codes was very high at times, especially with like 
one and three and even some parts of five, but five was more because I was impatient. I was like, come on, I want, I want more of these abilities. Yeah, I think these games, for the most part, especially the SNES ones, barring Mystic Quest, hold up quite well. Like, you won't find much of a difference between playing some, uh, a RPG from the PlayStation 1 era and one from the Super Nintendo era, other than, you know, the, the obvious. So yeah, you know what? Go play Final Fantasy V. Play Final Fantasy VI, play Final Fantasy IV. That'll give you a great taste of what old Square was without getting into all the things in the NES era that kind of made them difficult and obtuse and just unfriendly. All right, so next we've got Twilight Princess. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Wind Waker really surprised me in how, how much I liked it again. So I'm hoping Twilight Princess keeps up the trend. I'm not holding out well for Skyward Sword or Final Fantasy VII, but we'll see. You know, we got to keep an open mind. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. And be sure to check out the other shows that we do on this. I don't want to say network. That sounds awful, Ponzi. You know, the other shows that we do, which are Retro Rewind and the actual Bit Effect proper. So all that's left for me to say is thank you for listening very much. And